Chapter Twenty Three of Workers Together. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Workers Together or an Endless Chain by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Three. Parleying. This resolve he carried into effect. He had that advantage over some. When he came to a downright decision, he was very apt to act on it. Sometimes the difficulty was to bring himself to a decision. He waited only to learn, if he could, who the poor young man was, and to find that he had drawn his last gasp before doctor or minister or mother could reach him. Then he turned his back on the gaily painted pleasure wagons drawn by four horses, waiting to take passengers to the summer gardens, and took long strides toward the lower end of the town, in search of a little white house set back from the road, with a tree in front. As he walked and thought, he could not keep back an occasional shudder. What a place in which to die, a railroad train, and a Sabbath morning, and the mothers and the ministers, and all the praying folks at home. Ah, there was the little house. How came he to think he could go away from the city without a sight of it? He felt now that there was no sight anywhere in the world quite equal to it, for it sheltered his mother. He went softly around to the back door, he peeped in at the window. No fear of mother not being there to receive him, for she was lame, and never went away from home. There she sat in her little rocking chair, the one that he had bought for her. The little square stand, old-fashioned and worn, was drawn near the open window, within reach of her hand, and on it lay that old, large-print, brown-covered Bible, out of which she had read when she rocked him to sleep on her bosom. It was open, and her spectacles lay on it. She was ready to read. The little room had a cleared-up, Sabbath air all about it. All traces of the weekday sewing and knitting had disappeared. The work-table was covered with a fresh white cloth, and on it stood a tumbler filled with sweet-smelling blossoms. How quiet it was, and pleasant! And the look of peace on his mother's face was good to see. He would not have gone back again to his work without it for the world. And that poor fellow down at the station could not see his mother's face, though she was bending over him, raining the tears down on it. He turned the knob softly and went in. He knew well that the joy of seeing him would be mingled with pain. But he must go in. He must hear his mother's voice. Well, mother, he said, then he saw her face gleam in eager, joyful greeting. Oh, my dear boy, she said, and he was beside her and felt her arms about his neck and her kiss upon his cheek, and that young man lying down in the station would never feel his mother's kiss again. The day was very different from anything that he had planned. It surprised him to think that it should be so, but at first he had no inclination to leave his mother's side. Her face had shadowed when she heard how he came and how he was going back, but she said nothing. She was a very wise mother and had learned that there was a time to keep silence, that hardest lesson, perhaps, which anxious mothers have to learn. Still he felt the shadow, the more, possibly, because it was wordless. It was after the little sister came home from Sabbath school that he told about the sick young man on the train. Somehow he had not felt like telling his mother in the hush and privacy of the morning. But with the twelve-year-old sister fluttering about, 
it had seemed to him that it would not be so awfully solemn. But as it happened, the child deepened the impression. "'I wonder if his mother is a widow,' she exclaimed. "'Why, darling?' questioned the mother. "'Do you think you know who it may be?' "'No, mamma, but it makes me think of the lesson for today. Don't you know, mamma? He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow.' I was thinking that when Jesus saw that mother, he had compassion on her. Oh, dear, if he could only have been on the cars this morning. Do you think he would have been this morning, daughter, if he had been on earth? Oh, no, mamma, of course not. And the little sister gave a quick startled glance at the brother who had come to them on the Sunday train. He felt that glance, and was thinking at that moment that another must be added to the list of people who were not to be found on Sunday trains. Poor mother, his mother said tenderly, my heart bleeds for her, but there are many widows, daughter, who have only sons, and there are more sorrowful things than death in the world. Yes, but mamma, Jesus said to this one, young man, I say unto thee, arise, he is stronger than death. Dear child, he says those words to many a young man who will not listen to them, Oh, that my son would hear his voice calling to him. The words were low-spoken and tremulous. They hardly reached the ears of the sister standing a little way off, but the son heard distinctly. There was something about them that made him shiver. They seemed to pass through his outer consciousness, if I may use the term, and reach his soul. The young sister looked from one to the other of the two faces, and moved softly away, odd with a sense of a third presence which she could feel but could not understand. Austin Barrows arose from his seat near his mother, shook himself impatiently as if he would shake off the clinging thoughts, and went out into the little porch where the roses waved and blossomed. He picked one and pulled its leaves off with a nervous hand, and scattered them for the wind to blow away. Meantime he gave himself an irritating lecture. I should really like to know what is the matter with me. I was never so upset in my life. I'm sure I was always aware that there was such a thing as death in the world, and since a man has got to die when his time comes, I don't know why it is any worse to die on a railroad train than anywhere else. Yet as he spoke he shivered again, and he knew in his heart that it was not, after all, the railroad train, nor yet the dying, that made him shrink. It was the thought that he was not prepared to die. If the summons had been given to him instead of to that young man, he would have been utterly unprepared to meet it. Then came conscience up to have his word with this parleying soul. You are a fool, said this plain-spoken monitor, simply a fool. You say you always knew that a man must die when his time came, and certainly you knew that your time might be today you have no assurance to the contrary. Why, then, did not common sense lead you to make the necessary preparations? If you were certain of going to Europe within a few years, and if it were possible that you might be called upon to start today, would you not consider yourself an idiot if you gave no attention to the preparations, especially if there was nothing in the world to hinder you getting all ready at once, so that it would not inconvenience you to start at a moment's notice? You mean to get ready some time to die, you have always said so. You know just what to do in order to be ready. Yet you let the days go by, 
and keep yourself at the beck of such fellows as that Robert Parks, and keep your mother in constant anxiety, so that she is paler and feebler to-day than you have ever seen her before. Now, really, if you are not a fool, what do you call such conduct? The young man's face flushed a little. Nobody but himself would have been allowed to use such language to himself, but he could not help feeling that it was true. His mother had been faithful in her teachings. Miss Saunders had been a faithful Sabbath school teacher. Dr. Everett had been a faithful friend. Like Robert Parks, he knew the way perfectly. Neither had he gone so far out of the way, in some respects, as had Robert Parks. For instance, he had never neglected his mother. Yet this afforded him small relief just now. Glancing in at the little window, he could see her worn face. She was fading, it was very apparent. He would not have her long. Was it worth while to burden her heart with unnecessary fears for him? What did he want to do with his life that would be hindered if he should make the decision now and settle this question forever? Parks would sneer, of course, but was he really afraid of that fellow's sneers? Then he must be a coward, and he never supposed himself to be that. The boys in his set would cut him, but he was not so attached to them that this ought to make any great difference. His mother was praying for him, he could see her lips move behind the hand which was shielding her face. Her head lay back against the cushion, and he noticed that her hair was very gray, although she was young. Sorrowful days had his mother seen. He had it in his power to give her a great joy this day. Should he do it? These were some of his thoughts, and others ran counter to them. Shah, he said, kicking the fallen rose-leaves right and left. Fiddlesticks! What a gay time I was going to have today! Not a thing have I done that I planned to do. What will the fellows think? Some of them are looking for me, I dare say. What am I to tell them about how I spent the day? This won't do. I believe I will go down to the gardens as soon as I have had my dinner. Mother can't complain. I have given most of the day to her, and I must get back tonight, of course. I don't know when I have had such a day. I hope it will be a long time before I have another like it. I wouldn't have supposed myself so easily upset. It is all owing to that Parks. If he had kept his appointment this morning, as he ought to have done, we should have carried out our program and had a good time, and Mother wouldn't have had it to worry her. I must get away as soon as dinner is over. End of chapter 23 Recording by Tricia G.